0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Do I have everything I need? That's a question I regularly ask myself whenever I'm getting ready to go on a trip. Do do I have everything I need? If I've ever got to go somewhere, travel, whatever, it's probably a question many of us ask. And I don't know when it comes to packing in your life, how you respond to that question. I could tell you how I respond. I am a classic overpacker. Like if we're going to go on a trip, I'm like, I need to bring as many things as I can, because I cannot be in this place and not have what I need. And so it's like, all right, I got to pack all my clothes. My wife, like, my wife will look at me like we're going, you know, to her parents for a couple days. She's like, you don't need to bring six outfits. I'm like, well, don't you, could, you when I wake up in the morning, I'm not sure what outfit I want to wear, so I got to have options. Like, some of you can feel me on that. You know. I'm like, I can't make that decision five days beforehand, right? I got to know. You know, do I have all the toilet? Do I have all the stuff? It's like, we get ready to leave and I'm the guy with like the suitcase that's twice as big as everyone else. But my fear is that I don't want to be an underpacker. Right? Who wants to be the person that's somewhere and runs out of underwear? You don't want to be that. Now, thankfully, I have a wife who is a right packer. Right? She knows what she needs, exactly what she needs, and what's necessary to pack for whatever the journey, whatever the trip is. That we have when she asks the questions do i have everything i need she knows the right answer and she prepares accordingly the question i have the question of do i have everything i need that's not just a good question when you go on a trip when you go on vacation i think that's actually an appropriate question to the journey of following jesus as well what does it look like in our spiritual lives as we seek to pursue him to have everything we need Unfortunately, in my journey as a pastor over time, I realized that even in our spiritual journeys, we can fall sometimes into the trap of overpacking and underpacking. We can fail to recognize, do I actually have what I need? And what is the things that I need to finish the journey of following Christ as he's called me to? Some of us classically underpack when it comes to our spiritual lives. We live disconnected from the realities of what Jesus has made available to us. But others of us, we struggle with overpacking. We fall into a trap sometimes of what I call Jesus plus. Then when it comes to the journey of following Jesus, he's not enough, so I've got to add something to the journey. I've got to add something to my life to make up for what I sense the lack of what he actually provides for me. Because I don't want to get to the end and somehow miss what I'm supposed to have. And oftentimes when I look around, our culture... In our Christian culture, not just us, but beyond, I see a Jesus plus mentality when it comes to the journey of following Him. Jesus plus, maybe a little Eastern spirituality. Jesus plus, a little bit of the American dream. Jesus plus, a little bit of the world's values. Jesus plus, a little law so I can feel better about myself. Jesus plus, my good works. I mean, I'm sure if we went all day, I could give you tons of things, but we are prone at times in our spiritual journey to fall towards the trap of spiritual overpacking, of not thinking that Jesus is actually enough. But the problem is when we do that, it often leaves us exhausted, burdened, tired, anxious. You see, overpacking isn't actually helpful on a long journey. You know that. We go somewhere and my wife's got her like, you know, bag and she goes and I'm like pulling the luggage behind like, oh man, I got to load this thing in the car, right? Overpacking burdens you, it burns you out, it carries you, yet we're so prone towards it that oftentimes we're carrying things for the journey that we were never meant to carry. Today we're concluding a series that we've called the follower's trail guide, where we've been looking at Jesus's final teaching with his disciples before his death, resurrection and ascension. And in this teaching, Jesus is preparing his disciples for their mission and journey of what it's going to look like to follow him when he ascends to be with the Father, and they're left to continue on his mission in the world. Over the last 10 weeks, we've looked at multiple times how Jesus has prepared his disciples, comforting them, reminding them of the resources that he's going to give to them, helping them begin to understand the reality of what will look like to live and following him during that season and time. And this morning, we come to the conclusion, to Jesus' wrap up of this teaching. And what Jesus wants to do in this section is help his disciples not be overpackers or underpackers, but to recognize that in the journey that he's calling them to, that in his victory, he's actually given them everything they need to make it to the end. He wants to point them to say, Pack rightly for the journey. In the section prior to our passage today, Jesus sought to encourage the disciples in the midst of their kind of struggle with the perplexing nature of God's plan. If you were here last week, we looked at how sometimes it can be hard to understand what God is doing, but Jesus invites us to follow his path, his way through the sorrows and that he gives peace and joy in the midst of that. Jesus, as he begins to conclude his teaching for his disciples, kind of builds on that to begin to move them to help them see. But actually, in order for you to do that, God has given you some incredible things to help you in that journey. Jesus concludes by giving his disciples a reminder of three resources that he's provided for them. So this one comes in the first several verses. Let's look at it again. In verse 25, Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So remember, the disciples were confused in the previous passage about what Jesus had been saying, and Jesus essentially builds on that to say, hey, I know you don't understand. I've been speaking figuratively to you. I've been using illustrations and things because my full work has not been finished yet, but the hour is coming when that's going to be the case, In the Gospel of John, the hour is a technical term for Jesus' death and resurrection. He actually uses it multiple times throughout the Gospel to point to when he will die for sins and when he will arise again and ascend. And Jesus essentially says, when the hour comes, I will no longer speak to you figuratively, but in that day, I will speak to you plainly. The idea of I will use speech that doesn't actually conceal what God's plan is, but will begin to reveal to you the truth of what God is doing through my life and death and resurrection. And that will come when the hour comes. So Jesus points, there's a transition coming. And that transition is going to begin to bring you what you need for the journey that I'm trying to prepare you for and the mission that I am going to send you on. Jesus highlights the first thing in verse 26 when he says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, And have believed that I came from God. The first thing Jesus reminds them that will be brought upon his life, upon his death, resurrection is an ascension, is access, new access to the Father. He says, in that day, you're gonna come to me and ask me to ask the Father, but I'm not gonna do that anymore. You're gonna have the ability to go directly to the Father. Jesus has actually been preparing his disciples multiple times throughout the teaching for this reality. That upon his life, death, resurrection for sins and the sending of the Spirit, that his disciples will now enter into an entirely new relationship with God himself. That they will be able to come to God in the name of Jesus and have direct access to the heavenly Father. You see, everything of the disciples and those that sought God prior to the work and ministry of Jesus Christ had come through the mediation of others. Remember, God originally created human beings to live in his presence. That we were originally designed in the garden to live naked and unashamed before God. That means with openness, with access, with intimacy, and with relationship with God. That's how human beings originally were designed. It says in Genesis that God would come and he'd walk in the cool of the day with human beings. There was intimacy and connection. But sin, when Adam and Eve turned from God, ate of the fruit, and sin entered the world, we lost that relationship. We lost that ability to come into God's presence, to live unashamed before him, to have that sort of access. And what we see is, throughout the entire Old Testament, the way God now has to relate to people is through mediation. They can no longer come into his presence. They no longer have that ability and access to come directly to him. And so in the relationship, I mean, the greatest image of this is the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, which was the symbol of God's presence and the place in which God dwelt among his people. And in the center of the tabernacle in the temple was the Holy of Holies. And who got to go in the Holy Holies? One person, one time a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the people's sins. No one got direct access to God. They had to live through mediation, through sacrifice, through all the rituals in order for God's presence to be among them. And then suddenly Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus seems to have a whole different relationship with God. Jesus seems to have this, like, this intimacy and connection, this immediate access. He says certain things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. So apparently he has such a relationship with God that he always sees what God is doing and he responds. Or that he's always heard when he prays. He's not wondering or fretting or thinking, oh, does God hear my prayers? And Jesus as a human being seemed to have this constant direct access in his relationship to God. And what Jesus essentially tells his disciples is, once I die, once I rise again, and once I send the Spirit, the access that I have, you're not going to have. Your life is now going to be lived in my name. Therefore, you're going to be restored to the place where you can have direct access to God. You can go directly to him. You no longer will just have to ask me. You'll be able to go to him because you'll be in me. You'll be in my name. I will cover you. And you'll be able to go to the Father. Why? Well, Jesus gives us the reason why. For the Father himself loves you. That's a great truth to rest in. That the Father loves you. And because he loves you, he has now given you access to him in Jesus Christ the relationship has shifted. The relationship for all of us has shifted. Maybe think of it like this. Um, So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I got to, and 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 boys got to travel back to um, our hometown of Akron and we got the opportunity to baptize our daughter which was awesome. And a lot of you know about our daughter, but we have an adopted daughter. She's 24. We adopted her when she was 17. And prior to adopting our daughter, Taylor, um, we had a relationship with Taylor. We originally had met her through a ministry that my wife served at for teenage mothers. And we had known Taylor. My wife had cared for her. They had established a relationship. But when Taylor lost her mom and had no family to go to, and we felt led um, to bring her into our family, that relationship shifted, right? There was a change in the relationship. And because there was a change in the relationship, there was a change in the access within the relationship, right? You know that there's a difference between responding to someone you care about and responding to a child. And so when my daughter became a child of mine, there was a shift. There was a love that was expressed from us to her and a love from her back to us, and that changed the relationship, right? When my daughter calls me, I don't go like, eh, that's no big deal, right? I mean, I ignore most calls. Send me a text, please. Texts, That's different. When she calls, because the relationship is different, the relationship has shifted, and children get certain access and privileges that non-children don't get. And Jesus is essentially saying, when you trust in me, when you follow me, when you believe in me, You get that sort of relationship. God's love now comes upon you, and you get access to the Father directly. Like, he answers your call. You can know when you pray, he will respond and hear you. He loves you. How do we come to know that? How do we come to experience? Jesus makes it clear. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you've loved me. Because we've trusted and have believed that I came from God. When you put your faith and trust and love in Jesus, you become united to him. And who Jesus is, is who God now sees you as. The relationship that Jesus has with the Father, you now have the opportunity for the Father because you're in him. To trust in Jesus and to love him by following him in obedience is to come under his mediation. It's to come in his name and to have your entire reality and relationship with God shifted where it is now marked by the love of God over your life. And because of that, you have access. I mean, this is what the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 10, 19, when he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Remember, he's using that tabernacle temple imagery again. He's saying, hey, now that we have access, now that Jesus has made a way, now that he's covered our sin, now he's done what we couldn't do, and we have this ability to enter into the holy place of God. What does he say? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus, we get to come before God with confidence, with faith, with trust, with relationship to know him and to know his love for us. That's why earlier the author would say, let us draw, then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus is saying, you're going to have a journey. It's going to be a hard journey. It's going to be a challenging journey. But you're going to have access to God. In those moments where life is perplexing, where it's confusing, you can go directly to him. You can ask him for what you need. And you can trust that out of his grace and love, he will give you what you need for the journey. I'm opening a way for you to receive from God what you need to make it. You have access, and you can live as you have access when you face trials, when you face struggles, when you face trouble in your life. No, you can go to God, and he will give you what you need. What a resource to carry with us in our journey. But not only do we have access, Jesus also gives us something else. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Son of the Godhead became incarnate as a man. God became human, truly God, truly man, lived the life that we could never live, the perfect life that God had designed and created us for, ultimately then died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again, and Jesus said, I'm now going to ascend and go back to the Father, and I'm going to send my spirit because I'm going to continue that mission until I return to establish God's kingdom forever. So he reminds them of their mission in the coming transition. And the disciples respond to this with what the disciples normally respond with. A great amount of overconfidence. Right? This is what they say in response. The disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. What's interesting in the passage is that we begin to see that the disciples actually haven't grown that much yet. See, the disciples started Jesus' teaching with overconfidence. When Jesus came to Peter and he talked about what was ultimately gonna come, Peter said, I'll follow you, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, no, you won't. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows, John 13, 37. And here, as Jesus reminds them of his mission, and what is ultimately coming? The hour that is coming. They once again respond with the exuberance to say, oh yeah, we get it now. But look at Jesus' response. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will, not be, when you will be scattered each to his home, own home and will leave me alone. They're like, we get it. Jesus is like, you don't get it. They keep missing it. You see, they, they didn't have the understanding of the gospel and what was necessary for them to complete the journey that God was setting them on. The mistake that the disciples make in their response comes in the very opening phrase of their thing. Ah, now you are speaking plainly. You see, Jesus said, there's an hour coming where I'm going to speak plainly. The disciples mistake that and say, oh yeah, now we get it. We, we understand you're speaking plainly now. We got this. Let's do this thing, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. No, you're, you're missing it. You're missing the most important part. The hour that's coming that's necessary for you to complete the journey to move forward isn't come yet. And in fact, when that hour comes, you're not going to continue to follow me in that moment. You're actually going to walk away. You're going to scatter and I'm going to have to do this thing alone. As the disciples proudly proclaim, we get it. Jesus says, do you really now believe? Jesus has an ability to pinpoint the difference between stated belief and true belief. Those are not the same thing. And he says, you state belief, but I don't think you have true belief because you haven't gotten yet where this whole thing is going and the most important thing that I'm going to do in order to accomplish the redemption, you're going to leave me and I'm going to be left alone. And that would be true. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be put on trial. He's ultimately going to be condemned. He's going to be hung on a cross. And in that moment, all of his disciples will flee. Even the ones that stick around, like Peter, will deny him. I don't know him. I'm not with that guy. And Jesus will be left alone to face not only the ruler of the world, but the reality of our sin. But he reminds them, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knows his mission. Jesus knows what he's about. He knows that he alone will have to stand by himself and confront the evil and sin of the world, but that God ultimately had purposed this and was with him in that journey. One commentator says this, he says, In the final confrontation between the reign of God and the ruler of this world, Jesus will be left alone. The whole world will be on the other side in the final battle. The disciples will have been scattered to their own homes, taking refuge in the supposed securities of the old order, part of the unbelieving world. It's not Jesus and the disciples. It's Jesus and everybody else. But in that moment, he's the only one that accomplishes salvation. So what's the point? Why does Jesus bring this at the end of his teaching to remind them and kind of rebuke their overconfidence? Well, I think one of the things that Jesus is providing for them in this moment and really for the journey ahead is clarity. He wants them to see that what will bring them into the new era and will continue them in the new era under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and will bring them ultimately to completion into God's kingdom is not them, it's him alone that what is necessary for the journey is not their strength, it's Christ's strength. It's his work. One commentator says this, I love what he says, he says, the glue of Christianity is not the disciples, it is Jesus who will not abandon the disciples or let them become orphans even though they would leave Jesus when the pressure comes to them. I mean, one of the main things Jesus did in this section of preparing them for life in the midst of the challenge of the world was to say, what you need to do is simply abide in me. Right, he says, apart from me, you can't do anything. You you don't have the strength. You don't have the ability to complete this mission. You don't have the ability to live out the Christian life. You don't have the strength to do what I'm calling you to. But good news, I do. I have the ability. I will do this for you. Your job is just to remain in me, abide in me, stick with me. The starting point for the journey and the remaining point of the journey of discipleship is simply sticking as close to Jesus as we can and allowing him to work through us to produce the fruit that he desires too. And so what Jesus wants to remind them here is, listen, you think in this moment that you get it, but you don't get it. Because if you got it, you would recognize it's not about you. It's about what I'm going to do for you. That the work of salvation, both in its beginning, its middle, and its completion is in Christ alone. We don't bring anything into the table in that moment. It's not our strength that accomplishes it. It It's to let go of ourself and our confidence and put our faith and trust completely in Jesus. That's how we make it. That's how we complete the journey that he's setting us on and we live his mission that he's calling us to in the world. James Kennedy in his book Evangelism Explosion has a good illustration that I think helps us think this through. He says, imagine that you're in the middle of a lake, and you're in a leaky boat called self. And that boat is starting to sink in the middle of the lake. And along comes another boat called Christ. And this boat is not leaky. This boat is sound and true and will take you to the shore. And so you go to get in the boat for the journey to make it from your peril to ultimately to the place of safety. But as you do that, you you struggle with letting go of the boat that you've been in. And so you make the decision, I'm not going to get fully in this boat. I'm going to keep one foot in the boat of self. And I'm going to put the other foot in the boat of Christ. Now what happens when you do that? You still sink. Because you haven't put your faith fully in the boat that will save you. You hold on to the boat. At the end of the day, you still sink into peril. And I think what Jesus is trying to get his disciples and the clarity he's trying to bring them is if you're going to make it for the journey, you've got to get it out of the boat of self-confidence. You've got to get out of the boat of self-focus. You've got to stop thinking you've got it. Get to the point where you recognize you don't got it because when you do that, you'll step fully into my reality, my work, my accomplishment, and that's the boat that will bring you to safety. So stop relying on yourself. Stop with the overconfidence and thinking that you've got it. Instead, trust fully in me. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Not in Jesus plus. Not in Jesus plus my work. Not in Jesus plus whatever I add in the blank. That's not where my hope is found. My hope is in Christ, which means I have to let go of the things that I keep adding in to the journey of following Jesus wherever they come from, the culture, the flesh, the enemy, and I have to step fully in to say my only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ and what he has done for me by his death and resurrection. Because that then gives us what we need to complete the journey that he's calling us towards. Jesus knows we're prone to a Jesus plus spirituality. And so in this moment, he takes a moment before he completes the teaching to say, let go of it. Let go of your confidence. You're going to scatter, but don't worry. I've got it. The Father's with me. Put your faith fully in me. We need that sort of clarity for the journey. We need in the journey and challenge of our life to come back time and time again and remind us our hope is in Jesus. I will fail, he will not. I will struggle, he will not. And So if I put my faith in him, he'll take me to the finish line. And when we get that, we then will move, which is found in the last verse, 33. He says this, I've said these things to you, That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus comes to the end of his teaching in this section. And in many ways, in this verse, he's looking back and giving them a summary of all that he's been teaching them in the last several chapters that we've been studying. And as he does that, he reminds them of a couple things. One, he reminds them of the purpose of why he's been teaching these things. He said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. Now, when Jesus uses the word peace, he doesn't use it the way we often use it in our culture, right? When we think peace, we think a ceasing of conflict. That's not what's rooted in Jesus' mind. Jesus' mind is built out of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament word for peace is the word shalom, which really means the idea of flourishing or harmony, It's when things are as the way God intended them to be. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've said these things so that you can have harmony, you can have flourishing, you can have peace, you can have things in your heart in the way they should be, despite the challenges ultimately that you will face. It was Jesus who says earlier in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and Troy, but I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I've come so that despite the circumstances of your life, you can experience still the love of God and the flourishing that he has designed for his people in part now, ultimately anticipation when we'll experience it fully in his eternal kingdom. So Jesus reminded us, I've been teaching you all these things so that no matter what comes, you'll still be able to have peace. You'll still be able to have shalom. But as he says that, he then gives them a promise. In the world you will have tribulation. Now that word that Jesus uses for tribulation, we don't use the word tribulation. It's the right translation, but it's not a word we use vernacular. I actually like the Net Bible's translation of that word. They say in in the world, you will have trouble and suffering. Like he's like, you're going to go out and it's going to be nasty. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be all peaches and roses and happy and great. The journey of following Jesus has its challenges. And the reason it has its challenges is because you're being sent out into the world. You're like sheep among wolves, Jesus says. And what he reminds them as he wraps up this teaching is what he's been preparing them for, really for the last several weeks that we looked at. You're going to suffer. Everyone faces trials and suffering in their life. No one's excused from it. Right? We love to proclaim the promises of God and what he says in his word. This is a promise. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's going to happen. No one gets out of it. No one gets life unscathed, unhurt, unfacing the challenges. We live in a sinful, broken world that stands opposed to our king and opposed to his kingdom. And if we follow him, we will face trouble and suffering. There is no escaping it. But what does he say? I love this word for taking heart. It's it's the idea of courage. could be translated, be of good cheer. It's the idea of having the encouragement and strength necessary to face what you're facing. And so Jesus says, take heart, be encouraged, be strong, be courageous. Why? Well, he gives us the reason. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. That idea of overcoming is really the idea of victory or conquest. It's not just over, it's like I have defeated the world. I have brought victory over that which stands opposed to me and the kingdom that God is going to establish on this earth. So be encouraged. You might face the challenges. It might be hard, but you can have strength, you can have encouragement, you can have joy because I have already overcome those things. And in this moment, Jesus is pointing directly to his death and resurrection. Because, as we're reminded, by the cross, he put to open shame the enemies of God. By the cross, he paid the penalty for sin that it has no power over us. By the cross, he conquered and reigned victorious. And then by his resurrection, he displays to the world that he is won by the cross and that he is ushering in the kingdom of God and the new creation that he will one day return to establish fully and finally. He says, I've overcome. So you don't have to be discouraged even when life gets really hard. And he leaves them with this final word as he moves into 17 to pray for them. And what he reminds them, I think, in this moment is that we live... His followers live in a paradox. We still face the battles of the world. We still face the challenges. In this world, you will have trouble. But, he's already won the victory. Therefore, those things don't have to overcome us because he's already overcome them. And when we recognize that, it will change how we live. It will change how we walk the journey it will change how we face the hardships and circumstances of our life, that they don't have to beat us down. I mean, that's why Paul would tell the Corinthians, right? I'm perplexed, but I'm not abandoned. I'm crushed, but not destroyed. Doesn't mean life is easy, but it doesn't mean those things get the final word over me because Jesus already has the final word over those things. And therefore I can live different. And I can take heart. I can take encouragement in the challenges of life. Martin Luther, a great reformer, faced a lot of pressure and challenges in his life as he stood up for the sake of the gospel amongst the church that had lost it. He declared that salvation was in Christ alone, that we added nothing to the equation, that our works did not accomplish salvation, and yet in his day he faced persecution and opposition not only from politicians but the church and faced a ton of pressure in his life. And there's a story that goes that one day Luther just was overwhelmed and discouraged around his house, depressed, bothered, and his wife, Catherine, kept trying to encourage him, but he just wouldn't have any of it. You've been in that place, right? You've been in that place where you're like so low, it doesn't matter what someone says, you're like, I don't know, life sucks, whatever, just leave me alone. And so so he's in that place, so so the story goes that his wife, Catherine, decided to come down one morning, dressed completely in black. And Luther noticed it. And she said, And he said, are are you going to a funeral and something? What's going on? And she looked at him and she said, no, but you were just living like God is dead, so I thought I'd join you in the morning. And the story goes that it clicked for Luther. that, That he realized that despite the challenges and light and pressures that he was facing, that he was living as if Jesus hadn't overcome those things. And the story goes that it shifted, that he started to remind himself he lives. He lives. You see, you can take heart. You might get sorrow. I'm not saying life's going to be easy. I'm not going to say there aren't moments of tremendous grief and suffering and trial. But those things don't have to overcome you. You can take courage. You can take strength. Because Jesus lives. Because he overcame death. Because he walked out of that grave and said, it has no power over me. And if you're in me, it has no power over you either. And that changes the way we have to live. It changes even the way that we engage the challenges of our world. You see, our reality is not defined by the reality of the world. Our reality is defined by a risen savior and his kingdom. The world will do what the world does. It doesn't define us. It doesn't define our lives and it doesn't define our community. A pastor that I've been learning from who's in Australia, his name's Mark Sayers, he has, he's one of my favorite lines about the church recently. Is He's like kind of one of those Yodas on the church and culture and just has a lot of great insight. And I was listening to him a while back and he has this phrase that just always stuck with me. He says, the church should be an unanxious presence, a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. That if the resurrection of Jesus is true, if he's truly our king, then whatever anxiety the world is facing Whatever challenge they bring, whatever they're at, that's not where we're at. Our reality is now defined by Christ. It's defined by what he has done. Therefore, no matter what circumstances come, we can take heart. There was a missionary in the early 20th century named Leslie Newbegin. He was an Anglican pastor who was sent to India and served in India for 30 years in the first part of the 20th century. And when it was time for him to retire, he came back to England And what he found was a completely different culture than the culture that he had left. In England, there had been a rapid move towards secularization. And what he had left, there was a lot of positivity around Christianity. And when he came back, it wasn't the case. And Newbegin would spend the back half of his life actually writing to try to help the church navigate what it looked like to be a light in an increasingly secular context and he has some great resources one of the stories goes about newbegin that as he was doing this work he was interviewed by a reporter one day who asked him about the transition he had seen in the culture and the reality and what he thought about the church and, and all these things that he was observing as he was writing and teaching and newbegin was responding and at one point it says the the reporter asked newbegin he said well so are you a pessimist or are you an optimist and Newbegin had one of the best quotes. He said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. That's saying, my, my, my reality is not defined by the positivity or negativity of the culture. My reality is not defined by what I think is going well or what I don't think is going well. My reality is defined by a king and a kingdom who's overcome Satan's sin and death. And therefore, I have stability, I have peace, I can take heart no matter what the circumstance of the world did. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God was not shaken because of the results of Tuesday night. Jesus didn't go back in the grave. It wasn't a moment where suddenly God went, oh my goodness, what's happening in America? I have no idea. He's already overcome. He's already risen. He's already done the work necessary so that you and I will experience an eternal kingdom in the reality of God. Therefore, we can have heart. Therefore, we can have peace. Therefore, you and I do not have to let the circumstances of our life define our reality. You're going to face trouble. You're going to get a doctor report maybe that you don't want to get. You're gonna see things happen in your lifetime that you don't want to see happen. You will experience suffering. You don't get out of it, but it doesn't overcome you because you have an overcoming king. So be encouraged. He's given you everything you need. His victory has provided everything you need to follow him. So let go. Stop overpacking. Stop underpacking. Actually, stop thinking about yourself at all and focus your heart, mind, and strength on Jesus. And when you do that, the reality of the circumstances of your life will now become defined by his reality. And that's where peace is found. That's where shalom is found. That's where flourishing can happen no matter what you face. So what do you bring in this morning? What weighs your heart heavy? I want to just give us a moment together as we respond to God's word to bring those before the Lord. And so what we're going to do is the band's going to come out in a moment. I'm going to pray for us. And they're going to come out and we're going to sing a couple songs. And they're songs of victory. They're songs of reminder of resurrection, but they're an opportunity for you to take whatever's on your heart, whatever burden you're carrying, whatever circumstance that you feel like the world's trying to draw you towards, and to sing over it the truth of Jesus, the truth of his good news, that he's died for your sins and he's risen to do that together as a community. So Father God, I just pray right now that you would begin to move in this place. Reveal to our hearts out of your grace those areas that we've overpacked, those things maybe we've added on, those extra burdens that we're carrying, maybe those places in our lives where we're not trusting in your finished work, where we're trying to add too much of ourselves into the equation. Would you out of your grace and by your spirit just begin to reveal us? Would you convict us in this moment? And that as we turn now to sing your truth, to sing the truth of your victory, would you allow those things to be released to you in a way where we walk out of here freer, lighter, more ready to fulfill the mission that you've called us to. God, we believe you've given everything you need. Help us right now to align our lives and even our hearts towards that reality. We invite you to work even as we sing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself to us today.